and welcome to this bonus episode of the Missing Episodes podcast. When Paul Schoons agreed to have a chat with us, Paul Morris and I didn't want to pass up the opportunity to have a natter about not only the lion, but also Paul's involvement in many aspects of Doctor Who fandom over the years. We had such an interesting discussion covering so many aspects of the show and Paul's involvement in it that we felt you might enjoy listening to the whole conversation too. Thanks so much to Paul for putting up with us and here is our full discussion to include more content regarding the lion. So now we're joined by Paul Schoons who is the former president of the New Zealand Doctor Who fan club for 20 years. Former editor of the Time Space Visualizer fanzine, author of the comic strip Companions 1 and 2. He also appeared on the Strip for Action DVD Extra. <laughs> He's author of various DVD production subtitles and Blu-ray. He's done Blu-ray production subtitles for Earthshock, co-authored on Trial of the Time Lord and Battlefield. He's author <laughs> of the hardest fan novelizations on the planet to get hold of, Resurrection of the Daleks and Sharda. I'll talk to you about that in a minute, mm-hmm. Paul. Uh, he appeared on the Lost in Time DVD. And he also has helped to find an episode of Doctor Who. How are you, Paul? I'm good. I'm good. I do apologize for that very long list of things to talk about there. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get to the lion last. I want to uh, tell you about the resurrection of the Daleks in Sharda. I decided a few years ago to set out and try and buy every printing of every target novel. Oh, my goodness. So... <laughs> I got to about 750 so you get the first edition and then the second edition and then all the impressions after that and Is this um, for hardbacks as well hardbacks later right. I swapped to hardbacks yep. but I sort of gave up one of the three books that made four books that gave me made me give up was your two fan novelizations even though they weren't targets I still couldn't get original mm. copies John Preddle's revelation of the Daleks and then somebody after I thought I'd got a near complete set of targets someone found another printing and I thought this is never <laughs> going to end <laughs> <laughs> but that that was my first encounter with you actually you popped up on a conversation right. somewhere spouting uh, print run numbers sure. target books and then you popped up, popped up on Twitter the other day citing word count numbers for target books mm. it, it, is there anything you don't do paul <laughs> the, the just talking about those novelizations they are they are very old now obviously you know now we have official novelizations for all of those stories so mm. they've kind of become a bit even though as you say they're hard to find they've become a bit redundant because the official versions are out there the embarrassing thing for me is when Resurrection of the Daleks was published, the number of people who were commenting in their reviews that they preferred <laughs> my version to, <laughs> to to Eric Sayward, who's the official author, for goodness sake. <laughs> if anyone's got a right to novelize a story, it's him. So that was kind of a bit embarrassing. From what I've heard of it, I'm not surprised. Have you heard it? Have you read it? I have read it, yes. Right, yeah. and, and I assume you're D- going to D- say diplomacy, diplomatically quiet. Diplomacy prevents me from offering an opinion on it. <laughs> He's read the lesser copy, Paul Morris. <laughs> Do you have a drawer full of spares? No, unfortunately I don't, and if I said I did, I'm sure I'd be inundated with messages. <laughs> no, unfortunately they all they all sold out years ago, and as you're probably aware, they're all up on the website to read 
totally free of charge online. The reason I took them out of print was twofold. Uh, one, uh, one of the copyright holders, and I'm not going to say who, contacted me and said, hey, I'm not happy about this. The reason that he wasn't happy was not that we would had novelized them or were selling them. Mm. It was the fact that people were buying them from us and reselling them on eBay for astronomical amounts of money. He felt that wasn't on. And uh, that therefore right. that there was, you know, a huge amount of money being made out of something that he wasn't getting any, any dime for. The fact that we were selling them at cost as fanzines wasn't an issue for him. So just to placate the whole issue, I just basically took them out of production so that none of these eBay profiteers could, could make a cent out of them. The second issue was that I started to see copies turning up which were not my printings. So people were actually pirating them and doing them as their own publications and in some cases taking my name off the cover and putting their own one on even though it was actually my, my writing. So wasn't too happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what Eric did? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No, this was this was a guy who, who uh, again, I, I don't remember his name and I probably shouldn't say who it was, but there was a... When I, when I got to the bottom of it, he was a fairly notorious sort of counterfeiter in, in Doctor Who fandom circles. So, uh, yeah. A lot of people came forward to say, yes, he's done that to me too. So, yeah. Wow. <laughs> what people get up to in this fandom... I know, I know, but that's that's maybe that's what scarcity does to things. <laughs> I know Paul wants to talk to you about the uh, the comic strip companions, mm. but tell us about the DVD production subtitles. How do you get into that? Well, that comes about through doing the fanzine, because Martin Wiggins, who's the editor of the production information subtitles feature on the DVDs and now the Blu-rays, he took over in about two thousand and eight and decided that he wanted to put together a pool of about six or seven contributors who were all going to... Because obviously the workload was far too high for him to do them all himself, so he wanted to sure. get a number of people involved. And Martin was one of the readers of my fanzine, Time Space Visualizer, because I had a very uh, large overseas readership on this fanzine, even though we were producing it sure. in New Zealand. And Martin would correspond with me every so often to say, you know, oh, we've got the latest issue, or he liked this article, or had I considered this. So we, we had, you know, we, we were chatting on email every so often. And so one day he emailed me out of the blue and said, how would I feel about trying out for the production information subtitles and writing those? And first reaction was he's emailed the wrong person because I just didn't <laughs> think that would be something that would be, you know, that I would be necessarily geared up to do or that I'd, I'd have the, the ability to do it. But no, Martin was quite insistent that he'd read my articles in TSV and he wanted me to try out for it. So he gave me Plant of Fire to do. And he was obviously uh -huh. happy with that because he just kept firing them at me ever since then. So I did eight stories for the DVD range, mostly Peter yeah. Davison's, but also some other 80s stories. And they were a mixture of new stories and special edition stories. Because when they did the special editions on, on DVD, like for um, Venus on Varos <laughs> and Resurrection yeah. of the Daleks, they did a new set of production information subtitles for those because the original set had been done at a time when they weren't putting as much detail into them and they didn't have access to the original Cavisham production documents that, that you see on the Blu-rays right. now. So because we had so much more information available to us, it made sense to completely rewrite the subtitles from scratch. So I did a lot of those special editions as well. How long would it take, start to finish, uh, to do... You sit down, you're going to watch Battlefield. Yeah. You're going to do uh, the production subtitles for it. How long does that process take from researching to planning out to to publishing it 
on the video? How, how long does that take you? Uh, it's hard to say in t- total number of hours, but I usually allow myself about two months per story, which is... <laughs> But that's, wow. but that I hasten to add that's you know doing a few hours a day. That's not, that's not a, yeah. that's not a nine to five job. That's that's say do two hours in the morning and one in the afternoon or something. The quickest I've, that I've ever turned one around has been about three or four weeks. And when there was obviously a, a deadline to meet and I really had to pull finger. So I can do it that quickly if I if I just put my mind Wowie. to it. But it is a lot of work. So much work. We, you've got to bear in mind that the methodology is that you don't want to introduce any misconceptions or fan myths into it. You want to have it as accurate as possible. So what that mm. means is that you are ignoring all the reference books. You know, you're not looking at sure. you're not looking yeah. at um, sort of you know all the all the books have been written about the stories, and you know I've got shelf loads of these things. You, you're actually yeah. going back to the original scripts and the original production documentation and you are forming your own facts based on what's there. So what that tends to throw up is occasion. You, you find out new things that people have overlooked, but you also find out things that have been introduced into the belief about the story that isn't actually true or, or can't be substantiated, shall we say. A, a classic uh-huh. example of this is Resurrection of the Daleks, which is one of the stories I did. For years, people have said the working title for it is Warhead. Yep, yeah, I remember. And there is no reference to that anywhere. There's a very comprehensive production documentation going right back to when it was originally the final story of season 20, as you're probably aware, that was cancelled and then it was huh. redone for season 21. It goes from one day being called The Return to the next day being yeah. called Resurrection of the Daleks. And the only, and the only substantiated reference to warhead i can find is someone who worked at the bbc saw it on jnt's whiteboard now this is also <laughs> the time when jnt was writing things like the doctor's wife on his whiteboard to put people off the scent hmm. jnt has actually said this in interviews that that's what he was doing he put up fake titles to throw the fans off the scent because he was annoyed that stuff was appearing in fanzines before he had announced it so the fact that, <laughs> the fact the warhead appears on a whiteboard in his office to me is not <laughs> is not enough fact for that being an official title. Sure. Yeah. And what are you working on now, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on a story. <laughs> oh. no, I, because I, have, I have to be quite careful about this because uh, ones that have not been released yet, I'm obviously not able to talk about. So I, I am mm. under NDA until uh, such thing as uh, the, the announcement comes out. So just just bear in mind that I, that, that I do have scripts in front of me, and I am busy working on one. I'll have to put in the uh, in the blurb for this episode. Paul Schoons discusses the story that he's working on for the next Blu-ray release, just to get a few listeners. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> on top of all of that. You're also the world expert on the world authority on Doctor Who comic strips. How did that come about? Did you just spot a gap in the market when you came to write your your guide book on the subject? Or absolutely, I mentioned I used to write the, do the edit the um, fanzine Tie Space Visualizer, and my original idea was, you know, when I was the editor, I was, I was always looking around for ideas for articles, and I thought, well, it'd be a good idea to do do a article about the comic strips. And so, in starting to research that, I realised it was a huge untapped potential of information and i'm going well this is a series of articles now it's a book now it's a series of books because it's just it's an enormous topic it's it's as there's as much to say about the comic strips almost as there's about the television series because it's been running almost as long 
So I just recently at the time interviewed David J. Howe and Stephen James Walker, who run Telos in the UK, mm. who published a number of Doctor Who guidebooks. So to me, a comic strip guidebook was a perfect fit to go alongside their, their television companion. Hence why I called it the comic strip companions, as simply as that. And I pitched the idea to them in, in a very informal sense. I just said, have you thought of, not even putting my name forward, I sort of said to them, have you thought of doing one on the comic strips? And they said, basically, well, that's a really good idea. Would you know? Do you, do you have any ideas for it? And so, I put a sample chapter together and and sent it to them. And they said, well, we really like this. Would you want to write the rest of the book? And I go, well, it's going to be a series of books. Go, that's fine by us. <laughs> so it, it, it was quite an informal process, really. I, I I just sort of thought it went from someone should do this to I should do this in a very sort of short space of time. And it just so happened that the offer to do the Comic Strip Companion came about in early 2008, which is exactly the same time that Martin Wiggins emailed me about doing the production subtitles. And almost in the same week, I was called in a, into a meeting in the job that I've been working in for seven years and told, we've been making, making you redundant. And I was kind of like going, this is just a sign, isn't it? <laughs> so I go, okay, I'm going to be a freelance writer now. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah and the the first volume of the comic strip companion came out in 2012 i think it was and uh that covers mm. the um what i call the poly style era that everything prior to doctor who weekly coming into existence in weekly, 79 yeah, yeah. and uh, the much delayed second volume is is nearing completion and it's simply because i've been had so much a big workload on other things such as the blu-rays that i I have to unfortunately keep putting it aside, but it is getting close. Is that going to bring us up to date? Or no, is that that's, that's going to be another volume years. approximately the same size as the, the first volume, but that right. only covers up to 1990. So, wow. Because <laughs> you don't want to make the book so unmanageably well, yes. long. <laughs> I mean, that, so yeah, there will be a, a third volume to cover up to the end of the McGann era. And then, I don't know, I'll just keep going until I either run out of patience or get up to date one or the other. It's going to expand again, isn't it? Once you get into the era when it's we've got Titan and um, the Doctor Who Adventures comic and all. That's a scary prospect for me because once Tenant comes on the scene, it just explodes. There are just so mm. many comic strips. So, yeah, you could almost probably mm. do an entire volume just on Tenant alone. Well, I'm looking forward to volume two. So it's nearing the light at the end of the pipeline, is it? I hope so. I hope so. I keep thinking, oh, yes, you know, I've got time now. I'll do this. And then another commission will come along and I have to put it aside again. So, And um, my wife and I run a, um, a comic what well, sci-fi collectible store as well. So between us owning and managing that, that, that takes up a lot of time as well. So, Did you already have a complete collection of all the comic strips no. before you started? No, I didn't. Um, the way that came about was that I was searching on Google for something Doctor Who related and one of the search terms that came up that caught my eye was a Yahoo group, as they were back then. I don't know if Yahoo groups still exist. But back then, <laughs> there was a Yahoo group community for Doctor Who comic strips. And I was int- I, I've always loved the Doctor Who comic strips. So I thought, oh, oh, this is good. I should join these guys. So I clicked into it and, and sent a, you know, a membership request, which was duly accepted. And what I found out it was is that these were all collectors who were collecting all the... TV Century 21s that had the Dalek strip in it and all the TV comics which the 15 years worth of weekly comics are a phenomenal number of issues and none of them had a complete collection but what they were doing is they were all scanning the issues they had and adding them to the group and so they were building up a complete set of Doctor Who comic strips and they were very very close to completion on them 
and they were missing a number of the countdown and TV action issues. And I, I didn't have them myself at the time. I do now, but I didn't have them myself at the time. But a friend of mine had all those issues. And so I what I did was I emailed him and said, can I borrow your collection? I, I need to scan some issues for the... And he very kindly let me do that. And so I started contributing to this group. And we got to the point where we were only missing two co TV comic strips. We had everything else as a scan. And when I pitched the book to Talos, to David Howe and Stephen James Walker, I said to them, you know, this is what I want to do. And they said, yes, yes, go for it, go for it. And I said, one problem is I'm missing two of these comic strips. And I think Stephen James Walker said to me, I've got those, I'll email those to you. And so I'm going, yes. It just <laughs> the final bit of the puzzle clicked into place. I knew I was committed Fantastic. at that point. I was going, that's, that's the moment I thought, if he can provide those, I'm going to go for it. So that was the sort of the, the confirmation, if you like. And... I've, I've since built up a fairly substantial collection, but what I did when I was writing the book is I spent a week in what, I don't think it exists anymore, but there used to be a newspaper reading room in Hendon in London, and you could go in there and as a reading room and you put in your request and so the people who work there have their trolleys and they go and wheel out these bound volumes of newspapers and magazines, and they had an archive of TV comic. And so I, I went in there and uh, I requested these volumes and they just brought them out one by one and I'd sit there leafing through these dusty volumes for day on, on end making notes because what I wanted to find is when you know I had the strips obviously scanned so I didn't need to look at those but was there any mention of the strip elsewhere in the issues you know was it did it appear on the cover for instance were there letters to the editor were there you know any other mentions of the, the comic strips so that was fascinating a lot of a lot of <laughs> tedious work but a lot of fun too and the other thing with the comic strip companion, because when I originally set out to write it, it was just going to be a straightforward episode guide. I was going to like basically summarize each story and, and provide a few continuity details and everything. And I thought, no, I need this is a bit dry. I need to review them as well. So I, mm. I wrote a review for each story. Then as I was sort of getting close to completion, um, a good friend of mine who also works on the, um, the DVDs and Blu-rays, Richard Bignall, whom I'm sure you've heard of. Mm. Richard emailed me and goes, oh, do you realise that the, um, the the Cavisham Written Archive Centre, the BBC one, has files of the correspondence with TV Comic? And he very, oh. very kindly scanned the complete files because I, I was back in New Zealand by this time and emailed them to me. And I go, this is fantastic. So if you've read my book, you'll, you'll see that, particularly for the 60s, there is so much correspondence about what the TV comic were allowed to do and what they weren't allowed to do. Oh, absolutely. It just... Yeah, it's a fascinating extra dimension, oh, isn't it? Oh, gosh. It, it, to me, it just makes the book it, come and alive. And explains a lot. <laughs> it makes the book come alive in a way yeah. it would have been a lot more drier without it. Uh, Paul, just talk us through fandom in New Zealand briefly. Is, is, there, a, is there still a, a, a formal setup? What shape is it in? This is the strange thing that, that I often ponder about with fandom in New Zealand. I don't know if it's the same overseas. But I ran the fan club when Doctor Who wasn't around. Right, yeah. I mean, the Doctor Who fan club came into existence during the McCoy era, the the, the New Zealand fan right. club. And obviously it started to take off in a big way when the series went off air. And this sounds absurd, but really what it was is that people were like missing the series. They wanted to hear when it was coming back. And this is before the internet, of course. So following a fanzine would, it would help you to know if the news was going to come yeah. out. And obviously the new adventures were taking off and later Big Finish and all that sort of thing. So the fanzine in a way kept the series alive and kept the fat community active and it became quite a big, thriving fan community 
by New Zealand standards. We were yeah. certainly, in terms of New Zealand fan clubs, we were for a long time the largest, one with the largest membership you know, out of all science yeah. fiction clubs in New Zealand. Once the series came back, the readership and the membership started to drop away, which sounds absurd. But really what it was is that because there was such a huge internet community and everything could be read, you know, you could get your news instantly online by this time. And there were so many mm. discussion groups and, and, and Instagram and Facebook and everything that people just didn't need a printed photocopied fanzine anymore. And they didn't need a fan club to tell them about the series and everything. You know, the hardcore readership obviously stayed on, but it just dwindled and dwindled to a point where it just wasn't sustainable anymore. So we wound up the fanzine and, and the club about 10 years ago because, mm. and, you know, the, like you mentioned, the website's still there and the, the, the fanzine articles are still there, mm. but it hasn't been active for a very long time now. So it's almost like we kept the flame burning when there wasn't a series and when it came back, it wasn't needed anymore. It's developed yet again online, hasn't it? Because the forums, Gallifrey Base and elsewhere, you know, they're in decline because there's an even more readily accessible news feed on Facebook or, or what have you. You look at what's going on in Twitter, particularly, say, with um, Emily Cook doing the, the, the tweet-alongs. Yeah. That's where the community is probably at the moment. Yeah, I'm a latter-day convert to attending the Fitzroy Tavern. and I've, I've heard tale of, <laughs> you know, these massive gatherings. Mm. And mm. I go with Paul Morris and Richard and Giles and friends, and th there's barely ever a dozen people there. Barely ever. I was going to say, I mean, it's, much of what you said is very similar to what's, what happened here. But um, I've never quite understood why the pub gatherings are dr would dry out. It's um, no pun intended. Because <laughs> it's, it's not as if you can really move that online, can you? There's always going to be a, a certain dimension missing. Sure. Um, alcohol. I mean, we, we tried to do that in New Zealand. I, I, I certainly, when I been, went over to the UK a few times, I would go along to the Fitzroy and see that as it was. And because I was only going back once every few years, I was sort of snapshotting it in a way. You mm. know, I'd see one in 1998 where it was absolutely heaving. Yeah. And then say by, mm. you know, 2002, it was slightly smaller. 2006, it was smaller mm. again. By 2008, I turned up and I think there was one other fan there. The fanzine yeah. culture survived slightly longer over here, almost entirely because of the Fitzroy Tavern, because there was physically a place to, to exchange sure. them. So people just do it almost for a vanishingly small group of their own friends yes. and turn up and swap fanzines. And, yeah, I, I, yeah, I know it's different for you, but certainly the fanzines that I encountered at the Fitzroy were very sort of satirical, jokey fanzines, maybe. Very sort of, you know. Yes, I I may have contributed to that. Myself. Oh no, 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 <laughs> no. Bad habit. No isn't it? criticism <laughs> of it whatsoever. What I'm trying to say is that my fanzine, which develops at a time probably when I really wasn't that exposed to fanzine culture, is is much more. I don't. It's not an academic journal, but you know what I mean. It does take Doctor Who more seriously than that. It's a much more research based and review based. I'm glad people like you were out there too to take it seriously back when there were still new facts to discover. Sure. If I had done a humor zine, maybe I never would have got the work on the, on the Blu-ray. So <laughs> you know, there are advantages to doing a serious fanzine, maybe. Shall we talk about the lion? Oh, is that what we came here for? <laughs> <laughs> quite forgotten. Can I ask before we talk about it, Paul, I don't want you to review it by any means, but what were your preconceptions about the Crusade? Or what's your opinion of the Crusade as a, as a serial? Just, just very briefly. I think my um, impressions of it are very much coloured by it being one of the first Target books I would have read, I think. Yeah. So I'm uh, with my mental image of, of the Crusade to this day is very much the detail that Dave Whitaker put into the book, which, as we know from comparison mm. now, is very much more action-based and 
there's a lot more happening, particularly mm. in the later episodes, than we actually got on screen. So, yeah, it's hard yeah. to separate the two mentally. And as a fan growing up, forgive me, but when I was a younger fan, I tended <sighs> to be very dismissive of, of the black and white stuff. If what I had yeah. seen of it was very little... And what I had seen was multi-generation tapes, so it's quite hard to watch. A lot of snowstorm, you know, at a <laughs> flickering, yeah, flickering yeah. picture that never quite settled down back in the VHS days. So, you know, obviously I've long since sort of learned the wisdom, you know, the era of my ways, if you know, I'm become a reformed fan of the 60s stuff, so don't get me wrong on that. But there would have been a time when the historical stories in particular, I would not have paid any attention mm. to whatsoever. So hmm. uh, Crusade really didn't figure on my radar very much up until the time when when we found it because I wasn't someone who looked for missing episodes you know what I mean I didn't I didn't yeah. have any expectation we'd ever yeah. find anything in New Zealand so I I wasn't actively looking at any point and yeah. so I never was sort of running through my head oh what have we found this what have we found that just that just wasn't part of my mindset so yeah I didn't I didn't really yeah. have much impression of the crusade it was just another entry in the program guide I think ostensibly because there are no monsters, it's a historical. It's quite wordy. I don't think it. I don't think it would have been popular with the the kids at the time. Mm. And, and, and you know, it was it was the last historical of its type, and they were abandoned after that. The Hartnell Years was out on VHS, and that had the the uh, episode three on it, Wheel of Fortune. Mm. Uh, so I was yeah. familiar with that episode, but. In terms of rewatching Doctor Who, I, I think I gravitated to the complete stories far more than the uh, the incomplete stories. So if I was going to watch a Hartnell, I'm much more likely to say have watched Dalek Invasion of Earth or the Romans or sure, yeah. you know what I mean. The Time Meter, anything that existed as a complete story that I can enjoy from beginning to end without having to resort to audio or reconstructions or, or what have you. Yeah. So yeah, the, the the Crusade really didn't figure on my radar very much. So yeah, we're on to the, the third missing story. This, um, along with Marco Polo, Reign of Terror, this, the negatives weren't kept, which they had been for most of seasons one and two. Opinions still differ on why those three stories missed out. Mm, yeah. There used to be all sorts of discussion of the, uh, the fact that perhaps because they were historicals, they weren't as desired or as in, much of interest in certain mm. territories. So they did, weren't sold as wi widely. Yeah, or rejected. Yeah, well, indeed. Yes, the number of countries this uh, the Crusade was sold to has dropped yet again. It dropped from Marco Polo to Reign of Terror. Now we've, we're almost at half the number of uh, countries mm. buying this as we had with Marco Polo. And as you say, not all of them showed it, including New Zealand. Hmm. Paul, you know, you you are the only person who's seen evidence that this story was rated. Was it Y? Yeah, we've tracked down the um, original New Zealand Broadcasting Corporation, as it was at the time, the records that they had, the program logs, if you like, which was a handwritten ledger, multi-volume thing of every television program that came in as a, a film print into their archives. It has the record of it when it arrived in the archives, when it was uh, scheduled for broadcast, because New Zealand was split into four television stations regionally at the time. So you got each of the four broadcast dates for each each uh, story, each episode rather. And then you've got, quite crucially, you've got the record of when it was sent away again, or what, what happened to the episode, and also what it was rated. So the New Zealand rating system at the time, obviously every every uh, episode had to be checked by the censor and approved or disapproved. G was the general rating, obviously. 
which meant it could be screened any time of the day, and why it was more of a sort of a young adult rating, which was, I think, from memory, had to I be see. 7.30 or later in the evening, which obviously they wanted <laughs> Doctor Who as a family program to be screened on a G slot, ideally. And on the, on these ledgers that I just talked about, the line is actually logged as G along with the rest of the story, but on the actual film can itself, it was Y which meant it would have probably been rejected because it wasn't suitable for screening in that general family slot. So they probably would have gone, no, we, the same way that other stories at the time were, because were, Web Planet wasn't, was rejected for a bit. It was a why. Astonishing. <laughs> <laughs> from, from a 60 cents point of view, the Web Planet is a story that has no human characters other than the TARDIS crew. It's these alien creatures on this planet and they probably thought for a general audience it isn't quite it's a little bit alarming and same with Dalek Invasion <laughs> of Earth because Dalek Invasion of Earth's got some sort of scenes of violence and dead bodies and yeah. everything you can, can you can see the reasoning from a 60s more. viewpoint if you put that sort of mindset on of something that's a very much more of a conservative viewpoint of how audiences reacted to television in the 1960s you can see their reasoning but what we don't mm. know is why the crusade wasn't screened because we've got this two conflicting records our suspicion is that the annotation in the ledger is wrong and it should have been a why or that it was originally rated g and then someone had a rethink and gone no there's a little bit too much sword fighting and violence in this one it probably should be a why there's some very adult material with ella Kier, isn't there you know threats of rape and that's right and all that sort that's of stuff. right but then by the same token the, the time medal screened here and that's got you know threats of rape in it too so yeah jumping in just quickly on a, a point you made you said there were four regions did they bicycle around the same Prince, yes, yes, from they, station ne to station. No, they never screened on the same day. So you would have four regions were Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch, and Dunedin, which were the, f the four main centres uh -huh. in New Zealand. And there was no particular order. Usually it was, say, Wellington or Christchurch that got them first. Christchurch was the very first region to screen Doctor Who. And as a side note, we were the very first country outside the UK to screen Doctor Who in the entire world. So yeah. New Zealand has that, that claim to fame. But if a story stays screened in Christchurch, it may then screen in Wellington a week later, Auckland, say, a couple of weeks after that, and Dunedin maybe a, a week after that. So the closest an episode would ever screen in New Zealand would be f in, a, in a space of four weeks. And yes, yeah. it would literally be put on a train or a truck or something and, and, and as you say, bicycle. There'll be one film print. One film print would come into yeah. New Zealand. That film print would be physically edited. If any cuts were needed, they would actually physically snip that film. They mm. would put probably put their own NZBC leader on the front of it, and then mm. it would just be shunted around the country to each of the four stations, screened as scheduled, and then it would go into storage in New Zealand until such time as a decision was made about what to do with that film print. And that's what happened with all the 1960s film prints of, of Doctor Who. So in terms of New Zealand, there's a large number of stories that never screened here. We never got, for instance, Keys of Marinus, Aztec, Dalek Invasion of Earth, Web Planet, as I mentioned before. We never got Dalek Master Plan, never got Mission to the Unknown, mm. never got Gunfighters, a whole swag of Trout, and we never got Season 6 of Troughton at all. Wheel in Space was the last mm. story screened here prior to Pertwee. And some of those stories we just never purchased. It's not that they were all rejected by the censor. Some of them just never never arrived mm. in New Zealand. They probably perhaps were not offered for sale, or if they were offered, they were just turned down for sale. Yeah, there's big gaps mm. in the in the New Zealand broadcast record. 
the complete stories, the stories that exist to this day, have since been repeated here. We've had, been very lucky that from the 80s onwards that a lot of stories have been repeated. So if a story exists, mm. I mean, there's a... <laughs> Between when the UK screens Keys of Marinus and when New Zealand screens Keys of Marinus, there's about a 36-year gap. <laughs> so we had a little bit of a wait for that story. <laughs> but yeah. It didn't improve. <laughs> With the Pertwee era, we had the same problem. We never saw any of the Roger Delgado master stories on the first run-through. There were only 10 Pertwee stories screened, and, and then they went on to Tom Baker. So yeah, it, it was a very, very piecemeal. Hmm. Yeah, so Crusade was one of those Strange. ones that fell through the gap and, and never screened here. So it's ironic in a way that it turned up here. I've been looking into trying to discover, well, seeing what um, the consensus of opinion is on where your prints came from in New Zealand. And um, even John Preddle doesn't seem particularly clear. Some, of, I'd assume that they would have come directly from the BBC as they did for Australia. That you would have had nice new prints but it seems he seems to think that a lot of them came via Singapore yeah unfortunately that, that that ledger that I mentioned states where they went it doesn't state where they came from so we know for instance which episodes went from New Zealand to say Iran or to Denmark or to Singapore which were the three main countries that we yeah we exported films to but we don't necessarily know where they came from some of the and this comes from John so this is his research but some of the episodes that were screened here in the 60s definitely came from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, the ABC. But then, because of the dates, we know that some of them can't have done, because if the ABC only had one film print and we were screening at the same time they were, there had to have been two film prints, and where did we get ours from? So maybe we got a mixture mm. of ones from the ABC and maybe some directly from the BBC, and who knows, maybe some from other countries was certainly a lot of bicycling going on and that really muddies the waters in terms of knowing how many film prints were struck in the first place if, if countries were sharing them around. Mm. You mentioned Iran, that's quite timely isn't it because no less an authority than Mr Vanessis has suggested that one, mm. two episodes at least might still be there. We know from the, um, the programme logs that I believe it's two episodes of Marco Polo, the first two episodes of Marco Polo mm. were sent to Iran. Why we didn't send the complete story I don't know. Is it simply that the ledger hasn't been filled in for those other episodes and we sent the complete story? Or was it that we only sent the first two episodes because that's all they wanted? I don't know. Did they ever screen it as well? That's the other question. It would seem odd to send two on, on a audition principle because you'd have to then marry it up with the next five if they wanted to option it. It does seem odd, doesn't it, that you'd audition two, two episodes and not the rest of the story because what if you said oh we yeah. like that we'll get the rest of it and then there was something that we really couldn't screen in the rest of the story you'd really want to watch the whole thing surely yeah so um yes your episodes were sourced from a variety of different places but some of them were sent on as well to other mm -hmm. countries but the ones that weren't all faced the same fate didn't they yeah on on the program logs there's a date against many of the episodes of the 1st of april 1970 and for a while we wondered what that was and it turned out to be a stock take date and simply what it was is that someone or a group of people had gone through the New Zealand Broadcasting Corporation film stores and made a note of which film store had which film prints sitting on the shelves on that date so that they therefore had an up-to-date record of, of, of what they were holding and you know so they knew because days before computers it was all done on pencil and paper so the annotation against that episode of the, the the lion and the other episodes of the crusade is hs 
1470, which is Harriet Street, which was one of the uh, the New Zealand Broadcasting Corporation's film stores in Wellington, and obviously that date of 1st of April 1970. So that's the last annotation for, for that film print. And what we know anecdotally is that subsequently to that, a, a large number of those episodes that were in that stock take were sent to the dump. They cleared out the film store. New Zealand Broadcasting Corporation were building new archives, new studios, and didn't want to necessarily keep everything they had in the old film store. So a lot of it was just relegated to, to landfill to be sent to the dump. So we're talking, this is by no means just Doctor Who, it's by no means just BBC material, it's just film cans from all over the world that they happen to have brought into New Zealand for screening on television. They were just loaded onto trucks and, and sent to landfill. Do you have a view as to why those films weren't sent back or destroyed? Obviously they were destroyed because of the reasons you're saying for the change of premises. Mm. But there's this notorious return or destroy instruction, isn't there, that goes out with BBC prints? There would be a cost associated with returning them to the other side of the world. Um, We know that a large number of Doctor Who film prints and presumably other television programs as well were sent on to other countries so it probably would have been a sense of just letting other countries know what they had and other countries would say oh we don't need that or we would like that please and it just simply happened to be that the crusade along with a number of other stories was a the episodes were not requested by any other country they were not needed by singapore for instance Uh, i just wonder if they were still for sale if the rights had expired by 1970 I think some of them had, but certainly wasn't Ethiopia still buying some of these things back catalogue? Yeah, yeah. Ethiopia is mm. the last record of, of the crusade being bought by a country, and that's 1971. Mm. So it's, mm. it's you know well after New Zealand acquired it. It doesn't always seem like this bicycling system is working like a well-oiled machine, does it? I mean, just last time on the Reign of Terror, we, we were um, talking about Paul Venezes' yeah. theory that... Prints were often sat in, he used the word, not us, <laughs> in little hubs, one of which may have been Cyprus, sure. and that um, countries would put the word out on the network that they wanted a story, and it wouldn't necessarily be controlled centrally from the BBC. And what would this network have looked like? Are we talking telex machines? Are we talking faxes? Are we talking actually physic- physically mm. um, mailing a, a catalogue to people? I mean, uh, this is long before internet. We're discussing the fact that he, he <laughs> when he brought this up in his one, the one only time he's brought it up in an interview, he seemed very sure of it but on very little evidence. So I think he must have seen something that, that we're not privy to. I often draw the distinction in the approaches of John Preddle and Richard Molesworth to, to Phil Morris and Paul Venezes when they're talking about stuff because John's is very scientific and he will come up with an explanation for why certain prints were sent where based on whether where they were, weren't broadcast or were broadcast and it's very watertight and it's much the same in Wiped but you listen to Paul and Phil talking about it and they're saying it's balmy it's all over the place there's no rhyme nor reason things were just bunged in a crate and sent all over the world <laughs> it, it's really interesting that there are these two different theories about what Absolutely. happened maybe the truth's halfway between the two maybe it yeah. is yeah and based and uh, to bring it back to the story in question I mean New Zealand presumably didn't check to see whether or not the crusade was still on offer before deciding to unilaterally to destroy it. So well, they might have done. Mm. They might have sent a list mm. of, and we're not just talking Doctor Who here, of course, but they might have sent a list yeah. to the BBC and said, do you actually want any of these? We'll send mm. them back if you want them. There are records of some of the Troughton stories that the NCBC were holding were sent back to the BBC. 
Yeah. I think the Ice Warriors has got an annotation of Return to London BBC. So, yes, yeah. they were prepared to send stuff back. It's just simply some of it wasn't. And you've got to bear in mind, too, at the time when the BBC dumped those stories, the BBC might have still held a copy. Mm. Is that possible? This is true. This and is true. so they, the BBC response might have been, oh, no, we've got the crusade. We don't need it. And without wishing to open another can of worms, Ethiopia did, when they bought those stories the year after, they did get them from countries which were part of the TIE and distribution sure. network. So there may well have been wheels within wheels. Mm -hmm. Anyway, cuts to 1999, and 29 years after it was dumped at such a long time, <laughs> landfill. It? Such a long time for it to be effectively <laughs> hidden from public view. Yeah. What happened? Tell us what happened. Is that too broad a, is that too broad a question? <laughs> we probably need to break the story down <laughs> What happened? But yeah, it starts out as sort of word of mouth thing. And here I have to give a lot of credit to my, my good friend Neil Lambis, who's the one who did all the detective work. And he was talking to a friend of his called Cornelius Stone, who again never does, really gets mentioned in the story. So really a shout out to Cornelius here for uh -huh. his part to play as well. Cornelius was a friend of a film collector called Bruce Grenville. And yep. Bruce had in his collection, in his house, a number of 16mm film prints that he would play for his friends. And he had like an amateur sort of cinema type organisation. You know, he, you could hire the films. He'd come along and play the films for you if you wanted. So he was offering a sort of a film <laughs> hire service. This was actually online. You could... <laughs> this is the absurd thing. In 1998... <laughs> On Bruce's website, which you could have viewed from the UK or anywhere in the world, he had the line listed on online. No one ever noticed. Oh, it's bonkers, that, isn't it? Yeah. It's mad. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so getting back to the story, Cornelius had seen this episode of Doctor Who and mentioned it to Neil when they were chatting about what Cornelius had seen because they were talking about yeah, animated Planet of the Apes or whatever it was that Cornelius had also watched. And they were raving about, oh, isn't it great to see these things on a film? So Cornelius mentioned that there was this Hartnell episode he'd also seen at Bruce's, and, and this obviously pricked Neil's ears up, because Neil is one of these people who has spent a lot of time speculating about Doctor Who episodes hmm. still surviving anywhere in the world, maybe New Zealand. And Neil's got a background as a film projectionist anyway, so he's got an actual interest in the, in the subject. So Neil established from talking to Cornelius that it was an episode of The Crusade. They got that far. And the belief generally was that it might be the episode that existed on VHS. Nick Cornelius thought it might have mm. been the same one. So Wheel of Fortune, episode three. But he wasn't sure. You know, so Neil's thinking, well, the other three episodes are missing. So, you know, got a one in four chance of it being the one that, uh, mm. you know. <laughs> it would be ironic, wouldn't it, if we went along and it was Wheel of Fortune. And we go, oh, no. Because <laughs> it could have been. But, yeah, but that later happened with the space Oh, well, exactly. So mm. Neil got in contact with John Preble, whom we've already talked about and said to John, you know, hey, hey, it's a missing episode. And Because myself and John had listened to Neil for many years talk about missing episodes in New Zealand and all these theories and everything, and I'm sure that at some point you'll have Neil on your podcast and Neil will tell you all his theories, so I don't need to go into them now. <laughs> but uh, there's a bit of a cry-wolf situation there that, you know, Neil, <laughs> you know Neil's expecting John, John to drive from another city to come and come back to Auckland and go with him to see this film collector on the off chance that he might have a missing episode. So John turned him down and said, no, I'm, you know, I don't think, I'm not, I'm not bothered, I'm, I won't come along. So Neil then phoned me, and one of the reasons he did that was because John said, oh, 
Neil had already arranged for Bruce Greenville when he'd set up this meeting. He said, would you mind if we videoed the episode? You know, if we set up a video camera and took a recording of it off the screen. Bruce goes, no, that's fine. You can do that. And so I had a video camera and, and John didn't. So John said, well, why don't you call Paul? Because he's got a video camera. And so Neil phones me and I go, oh, Neil, look, I haven't actually, you know, Neil's a good friend of mine. We've been friends for years. And, and I said, well, let's catch up anyway, because even if it turns out to be nothing, at least we'll have had a good catch up. And so, yeah, yeah. So we got together in town. We went out for a meal and, we, you know, there was certainly a sense of anticipation or, you know, this could be, we could be on the verge of a major discovery. So we're getting quite excited about it. Really, we're sort of rocking each other. Okay, this is going to be great. It's going to be great. We're going to find something. But the background mind's going, no, don't get too... Don't get too wound up because, you know, this guy might not have anything, you know, that, that's missing or he might not have anything at all. Or they might, the, the, the Chinese whispers might have got very confused. So we went along to the um, Bruce's place and Bruce welcomed us in and everything and very happy to see us there and we chatted and everything. The problem was that Bruce had just, uh, maybe 10 minutes beforehand, had sat down to watch a film on video <laughs> oh, I <read> this. Yeah. <laughs> it was a, a film called Veronica Voss which is forever stuck in my memory <laughs> 1984 black and white <laughs> film that just seemed to go on for an eternity IMDB says it's under two hours but it felt like three to me <laughs> <laughs> so we basically had to very politely sit through this entire film and as we were doing so my feeling was that this is how you get wound up. This is how hoaxes happen. Yeah. You know, you've been pranked, basically. You get to the, you know, you've been waiting there all evening. Oh, we've got nothing, you know. Yeah. yeah. You've got you, a you, you, video of Rick Astley. Yeah, you've been had. Yeah, exactly. You've been rolled. You've been had. You know, someone jump out. You've been pranked. So that was my feeling of, you know, I, I was getting more and more despondent as we were watching. And I think Neil picked up on that because at some point he sort of turned to me. He goes, no, no, it'll be all right. Stick with it. Stick with it. You know. So very politely, because didn't want, didn't want to upset him or walk out on him or anything. We just we suffered through this film, and then afterwards, <laughs> Bruce goes. It's getting quite late at night by this, so it's getting into. And I was saying, going, I oh, half expecting Bruce to go. Oh, it's too late now. We'll, we'll do it another time. But no, Bruce goes. No, let's put on the film. Let's just do it. So we put on the film. Another thing to consider, and this is something that's only just occurred to me, when we got there, it, it was probably still daylight, and therefore actually putting the projector on might have been too early in terms of actually being able to see the film uh, that might have been right. in Bruce's defense that might have been part of his reasoning although I don't remember right. him saying so at the time is he might have been waiting for it to get dark so he could actually screen it it's right. never occurred to me Todd is telling you that right now there you go there's, <laughs> there's, there's an exclusive for you so I because this is Jan, this is January right and early January yeah. this is all, this is New Zealand so that's the height of summer for us so it yeah. would have been getting it would have been getting dark about maybe nine o'clock in the evening. There you go. Yeah. Gosh, that's a mystery solved, isn't it? That's why we were watching Veronica Voss on video, because the Veronica Voss wasn't on the projector; it was on the video. You know, it was just on the television. Well, there you go. Oh, oh, you see, I've been maligning Bruce yeah. all these years. Sorry, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> isn't that funny? All these years later, when you retell a story, how things occur to you. <laughs> but he might he could have put on back to the future or something he? <laughs> <laughs> terrible all, all those times i've, I've told the story and, and and grumbled about him and oh dear totally unjustified i feel bad now <laughs> anyway get back to the story <laughs> so at the end of it um bruce says right we'll set the projector up now and uh, you can set your video camera up and we'll play the episode for you 
And at this point, Neil and I are still very unsure about... Obviously, he's got a, a physical film print. That's pretty obvious, and it's probably mm. Doctor Who, because why would he go to this effort if it wasn't? But we still don't know, you know, which episode it is. And Bruce says, I think it's called The Lion. And we're going, well, that's one of the missing ones. So we're kind of getting a little bit anticipation at that point. And because the agreement we had with Bruce was simply, we'll come around, we'll watch it, we'll video it. And my video camera mm. had an open mic, so obviously it's picking up all the sound in the room. We were like, we'll just all very stay very quiet and watch it so that we get a good copy on the video, right? So <laughs> we were restrained in our reactions, obviously. <laughs> so once <laughs> Neil and I saw the, you know, saw the beginning of the episode and we, we, we started out and we could see that it was the beginning of the story and sure enough there was the title The Lion, we were kind of like silently shaking each other's hands and sort of giving a <laughs> thumbs up and everything without wanting to say anything. I mean, that sounds really absurd, I guess, in retrospect because, you know, we should have been sort of cheering and whooping and carrying on. What we didn't know, because neither of us knew Bruce very well, is whether that might have been our one and op only opportunity ever to see it. And so, therefore, yeah. that video copy that I was making Indeed. on my video camera might have been the only record we ever had. So... yeah. There, there is a parallel reality where, to this day, that that video camera recording is what everyone's seen and nothing more. If Bruce, for argument's sake, <laughs> never let it out of, out of his sight, or sold it to a collector who never let anyone ever see it ever again, so yeah, yeah. so we were we were mindful at the time that that we needed to get as good a video copy as we could of the you know, and it's simply a video camera pointed at a projection screen on a slight angle, obviously, so it's not you know it's not dead on. Yeah, and obviously the sound of the projector clicking away alongside it is also on the soundtrack. So it's, it's honestly, it would not have been BBC standard to put it out. It would have been like a yeah. hidden Easter egg if if it had gone out on on, yeah. on Blu-ray or whatever. So obviously we got to the end. Of I was it. just going to say that actually. Um, have you still got it? I mean, maybe it could make a good hidden Easter egg when yeah, we. Yeah, I mean, get to when it. when they eventually get round to putting out that season, maybe I suggest should suggest that to them. They should put out the. I know that I sent a copy, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I did send a copy of that VHS to Steve Roberts, so he may still have that somewhere. I'm not sure if I've still got a copy, hmm. but um, but yeah, it'd be funny to see it, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so we got to the end of the episode, and the awkward thing was that on one hand, and you know, you mentally play this through in your head. In fact, the thing is, when I was watching the episode, I was trying to enjoy it and you know, take an experience, but like you would be. And the back of your mind is going, what do we do now? You know, that's yeah. what was on going through my head. What do we do now? We haven't really discussed this very well beforehand. How do we cope? What do we do? We don't know what the correct procedure is to actually do anything about this. Well, who is this guy? Mm. Is he going to let us borrow it? You know, all this is running through my head while we were watching this episode. So we get to the end of it. And I was really hoping that Neil wouldn't overplay his hand and he probably was hoping the same thing about me because we hadn't really discussed it very well beforehand because if we'd suddenly started saying to bruce this is fantastic you're sitting on a gold mine bruce might have gone oh, okay right i'm putting it up for auction right now and no one's ever going to get to see it and i'm going to make millions of dollars out of it or whatever he thought and that would have been the end of it as it was bruce was kind of like oh it doesn't really i've watched it a number of times i'm not really that interested in it you know it's not a complete story i and, and his in Bruce's mind, he thought the BBC held it. He didn't realise it was a missing mm. episode. 
Um, he wasn't yeah. much of a Doctor Who fan himself, so he just wasn't clued up on the fact that the BBC were missing. You know, his in immediate reaction to us saying to him that the BBC were missing episodes, and this was one of them, was, you know, that's not right. The BBC hold all of Doctor Who. You know, you can go into a shop and you can buy them in VHS. We'll go, no, there's <laughs> ones that are missing. But this is a non-fan perspective, right? Also, a lot of BBC staff thought exactly the same thing, apparently. Well, yeah, well, yeah we'll get to that later on, shall we? <laughs> that's a whole other can of worms. Did you tell Bruce there and then, or did you go, oh, well, that's quite interesting, I suppose? Or how did you how did you react when the when the film finished? Well, like I say, we were trying to be a bit sort of diplomatic and, and circumspect about it because we didn't want to sort of hype Bruce up to the point where... He, he, we, don't, we didn't want to think that he had something so incredibly valuable that he would never let out of his sight because... Hmm. My my um, objective in this was I want to actually borrow this film print from you. I want to take it away with me. I want to send it to the BBC. I want them to be able to take a copy of it. And then I, I, my, my presumption was then they'll give it back to you and you can do what you like. That's what I proposed to Bruce at the time. I said, look, this is mm. be the ideal situation if you let us borrow it and send it to the BBC for a period of time as a loan. Bruce seemed amenable to this, but he wanted time to think about it because obviously he didn't know us very well. We didn't know him very well. He didn't know if we didn't have any sort of credentials on us or anything, if you know what I mean. So we decided to leave it for a week, you know, let Bruce think about it. Neil and I went back to my place and we emailed Steve Roberts. I knew Steve probably through his forum, maybe. Mm. So he knew who I was. He, he knew, you know, we knew each other to email each other. So his reaction was very much immediately, great, this is great news type thing. And he yeah. emailed me a, a letter that I could give to Bruce that would, you know, state what they, what the BBC's intentions were in regard to the, the film so that Bruce had something to, um, you know, verify that we were legit. And I think that happened, yeah. I might be getting ahead of myself, that the first time I think I didn't have the letter when I went around to see Bruce, if I remember rightly, because I, I arranged, a, I, I rang up Bruce, Neil, Neil lived, had to go home to, to his own city, so I had to do all the work, the leg work after this point. So Neil had done all the detective work, Neil had invited me along, everything in terms of finding the film, in terms of finding Bruce, arranging the film, you know, the, the screening, Actually getting yeah. the contact with Bruce, doing all that legwork, inviting me along, that's all Neil. Neil deserves all yeah. the credit for that. That's Neil Neil is the one who found the film. I'm the one who returned it, if you want to break down the responsibilities yeah. there. Hmm. So this is where I come into play is I was responsible for negotiating its return once Neil had gone home to, to his home city of Whangarei. And and so I, I rang up Bruce a couple of days later and said I didn't leave a week because I thought this someone's gonna get Someone's going to hear. Someone's going to get, we're going to lose our opportunity. So I rang up Bruce and I said, look, you know, hello, remember me and all this. And uh, would you, uh, thank you so much for letting us see the episode. How do you feel about loaning it to the BBC? Would you mind if I come around and pick it up? And he goes, oh, yeah, come around in the evening. So I thought, this is easy. So I thought, right. Well, I drove around to, to Bruce's after work and go, right, hi, here I am. And Bruce meets me at the door and goes, no, I've changed my mind. Oh no! I've decided that you know I I don't I, you know, you just might take the film away and I might never see it again and I'll never know you know I never contact any, hear any contact from you and I've lost my film don't things. So. Fair enough, Bruce. You know you don't know me very well and I could just be you know trying to steal your film. So I, I think at that point I went back to Steve and got an official letter from Steve emailed through that I could print out and send and give to Bruce. So I think that was yeah. the the point at which it it. it uh, Turn from you know I got some some backing if you like. 
because the second time I went back to Bruce, he, he, he looked that over and said, yeah, that's fine, and handed me the film. Fantastic. But the thing that sticks in my mind to this day is walking away from Bruce's flat with the film in my hand, and it was a very <laughs> long, steep driveway that I had to walk up, and Bruce was standing at the door watching me. I just kept thinking at the back of my mind, any moment now he's going to go, hold on, no, wait, come back, I've changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought this is just, you know, get to the car, get to the car, get in the car, drive away. <laughs> but yeah, um, I, I was in constant contact with Steve and Steve said, look, the best way to get this film back to me securely is if it goes directly to Steve's address, not to the BBC. Because if it goes through their mail room, there's the risk that it might go to the wrong department, might get missing. There was also, um, I don't know how true this was, the belief too that there were fans working at the BBC who might have intercepted it before it got to Steve. That was oh, never yeah. been confirmed for mm. me, but there was certainly people have posited that as being a reason why it shouldn't have gone directly to the BBC. Anyway, I arranged all that with Steve, and I'd already posted Steve a copy of the VHS so that he could, because yeah. at a point when we didn't know if we could borrow the film, so so at least he had a copy. And then Steve said, look, the most secure way is to use FedEx to get it from uh, New Zealand to the UK. And I go, Steve, you realise how much money this is? He goes, that's all right, that's all right. You will be reimbursed by the BBC because you know, they want to get this back. <laughs> I hear you laughing already, you know this, but anyway, right. so... <laughs> So I, I dutifully do all this, um, and out of my own pocket, own, own Visa card, send the film print via Express FedEx to the UK, and it's so fast that Steve receives it long before he gets the VHS copy, even though they've been posted earlier. And so that's all secure. He's got the film. The film's fine. You know, brilliant. Everything's good. So from that point, I can sort of breathe a sigh of relief. So yeah, I mean, as you're probably aware from seeing the, the film, it wasn't in the best of condition. Um, there was a lot of tram line marks down the side where it had slipped off the projector reel and obviously uh, the the edge of the film had become scratched over time. Um, that's possibly partly due to, to Bruce screening it quite a few times prior to that. He'd, he'd, he'd watched it a lot of times for playing it for his friends over the years. Well, over, I won't say over the years, over the months. He'd only had it since... And this is probably where we should talk about where it came from, really. But... Um, Bruce acquired the film in 1998, so only about six months before before we found it in his possession. And Bruce had found it at a film fair in in, in New Zealand. He had bought it for a grand total of five dollars, which is next to nothing. And and it just basically the the reason why it was so cheap was because it wasn't a complete story. It was you know no no one realised it was a missing episode. None of these film collectors had any idea that there were missing episodes of Doctor Who and in the time after the discovery after we after we returned to the BBC and we were like going well, where did this come from we realized it was originally a New Zealand Broadcasting Corporation print there was you know mark markings on the the film can or the film itself which identified that there was no doubt about that it had the code number on it which is um a B-271-48 271 is the the New Zealand Broadcasting Corporation code for Doctor Who. B is the code for a half-hour program, and 48 was mm -hmm. literally the 48th episode of Doctor Who that they had acquired. And the research that we did after the film was returned to the BBC, a good friend of ours from Wellington called Graham Howard did a lot of this footwork. 
he had discovered what mm. had happened was that when the films, and we're talking lots of films here, not necessarily all Doctor Who, but films from this film store in Harriet Street that I told you before, had been sent to the dump, maybe multiple mm. trucks, maybe multiple dumpings, not necessarily all on the same day, a mm. film collector had got wind of this and had made arrangements with the guy who was doing the dumping that he would just, on on the sly, would, would just help himself to, you know, rather than this guy putting them all in the dump, he'd turn up with his van and he'd load a number of these film prints into the back of his van and, I don't know, maybe there was an exchange of money, I don't know. There's too, the, the details are too long lost in the past. But the reality was that quite a large number of film prints ended up in the film collector's possession, which were meant to have gone to the dump, and the paperwork was basically, they've gone to the dump. The guy who was dumping them was like, yeah, yeah, they all went in the dump, you know? That's the official story, but the unofficial story is a lot of them went to the went to mm. this collection. This was a fraction of the dumping. So in other words, he yeah. wasn't allowed to take everything because, you know, the guy had to have been seen to have dumped a lot of the stuff in the landfill. If the landfill was, didn't have any film pans in it, questions might have been asked. He saved hundreds of prints, didn't he? But what, were they, was that out of thousands, do you think, maybe? We don't know quite how many there would have been. Like I say, there might have been multiple trucks worth. He took 321 films. Right. We know this because he produced a 17-page type list of all the films that he'd rescued from the dump. So we know what he rescued. There's like episodes of Man from Atlantis and uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and all sorts of things. It's totally random because he, he was just basically just probably at some haste and, you know, covertness, shall we say, just grabbing what he could find. And I don't know if he would have even been looking out for anything in particular. So it's a very much a random assortment of stuff. And unfortunately, you know, we can do the mind games, you know, <laughs> but there could have been lots and lots of Doctor Who episodes in that dump. There could have been, you know, the truck could have mm. been dumping lots and lots of film prints of Doctor Who. It just so happened that one of them was got picked up by this guy and, and taken, and that happened to be the lion. None of the other film prints on his listing were, were Doctor Who, only that one one print. It's a remarkable coincidence, not coincidence, it's a remarkable stroke of luck that if the New Zealand records don't exist for what happened to the Prince of the Dalek Invasion of Earth, the Rescue, the Romans, the Web Planet, and the Crusade. What a good stroke of luck it is that the one episode <laughs> that he has picked up is one of the 6, 8, 12, 18, plus 1 Crusade, 19 potential ones that he could have grabbed that, that we had. What a good stroke of luck. The same, the same annotation that appears on the program records for the Crusade, this you know, 1970, mm. the last known, you know, stock take of it. Yeah. Also on that is um, Dark Invasion of Earth, The Rescue, The Romans, The Web Planet. They've all got that same annotation against it. So they could potentially have yeah. all been in that, that dumping. Also in that is five episodes of Marco Polo. <gasps> that also has the same annotation against it because the first two episodes are sent to a run the remaining five right. have got the same annotation that, that Crusade has so technically I did not know that technically right. they could have been in that dump same thing with right. Space Museum but again you're not that interested in that but you know what I'm saying it's there's a whole <laughs> the whole grouping of those episodes have all got that same notation against them yeah. but my point of all those stories that it's listed off to you so many of those we, we don't need you know what I mean mm. yes. so so you, let's yeah. let's imagine that all those episodes of Dalek Invasion of Earth Rescue Romans Web Planet all went into that dump at the same time we don't know that but let's say yeah. for argument's sake they did he could have easily yeah. just picked out one of those. You know what I mean? The chance of him getting just the episode of Crusade, yeah. one that we didn't have, 
quite remarkable, really. And it's it's a stroke of fortune as well, I think. We know definitively, thanks to the detective work, the films that he picked up. So you guys aren't going to be, you know, wondering if there's more out there for the rest of your days because you know definitively that's the only one he got. Yep. You know, it, it's sad. Short of digging up this rubbish there. tip, there's nothing else that can be done, is there? Yeah, but can you imagine? <laughs> Not early, early 1970s <laughs> through to now, what the state of anything would be. <laughs> I, don't, I, d- I very much doubt you'd even recognise it as a film can, let alone anything else. Even before Indiana Morris started talking about digging up rubbish tips, I, I remember fans <laughs> on forums saying, could we do this, could we do this? I'm sure somebody once said that it had a, play, a school playing field on top of it now, but I don't know if that's apocryphal. Right. John might have said it was a car park. Yes, uh, John, John Prettles John Prettles showing me aerial photographs of what he believes is the the landfill area. Uh. <laughs> Again, that's something maybe you can ask him about. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Well, I, 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 I don't want to fuel speculation by any means, but what we don't know is whether there are other film collectors who are doing the same thing. Ah, uh, right. You know, okay. so are there other okay. collectors who have also got stashes of? episodes that they rescue from dumps and i'm not talking about digging up i'm talking about you know intercepting them at the point yes, where they were being yeah. taking them off the truck and basically saying i'll have these things because yeah. if one collector was mm. doing it presumably he was part of a community of collectors and they may have all been at it yeah again yeah. there's that high probability that there's no doctor who and because it's, like i say it was a norm out of those 371 or whatever it was there's only one doctor who which just gives you an indication yeah. of just how many television programs were being dumped and of mm. those, you've got to remember a lot of the Doctor Who episodes, missing episodes that now, are not ones that New Zealand kept. A lot we sent on to Singapore. Yeah. So they're, not, they're, just, they're just not yeah. around here. In, 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 uh, yeah. They couldn't be found. You know, there's, there's stories we literally we know we cannot found because there's only one film print and we know where it went. So, yeah. So yeah but, but even so, fantastic that you've got the audit trail, if you like. Yeah. You know, the, the trail. Because all of these orphans that have turned up in the UK... They've been on a, you know, they've just turned up sure. from a collector who can't really remember where they got mm. them from. And if they got them from a, a car boot sale decades ago, then there's absolutely no chance of tracing it. It's such a complete story, this. It's lovely. It's really yeah, nice. Yeah, I mean, just... Really good. What we, what we understand is that a, a large number of these film cans, including the Lion, had been stored for a long time on a property and basically... He, he hadn't been paying for the you know he'd been using someone else's property to store these films and he hadn't mm. he'd agreed to to pay this this guy who owned the property you know for the storage space and tons and tons of boxes and crates of all sorts of junk that that was being and apparently it was being exposed to the weather and everything so it was all just starting to deteriorate so again stroke of fortune the lion didn't you know the rain didn't get in and all that sort of thing because all these film cans were just lying around in, in open weather so the guy, a guy called Dean Fletcher, got sick of all these, you know, having to store this stuff for his mate, and um, invited a film collector called Larry Duggan along to his property and go, well, would you want to just make me an offer for for what you'd like? And so Larry bought around 40 of these films for $150, and one of those happened to be The Lion, and then um, Larry sold it at a film collector's fair so Larry, Larry bought it in 1998, so it wasn't very much 
longer and in May that year mm. he sold it on at a, a film collector's convention in Napier and that's where, where Bruce bought it. So basically the lion had been sitting in, in, in junk storage for, for, for a while. Fantastic. Yeah, so they, just, there's all this sort of good fortune steps all along the way where it might have got destroyed or lost or, or you know what I mean? The, yeah. it, it survived all yeah. these steps. Yeah. And, and, and like I say, Fantastic. none of these film collectors knew the importance of it. They were all just like, it's an incomplete mm. Doctor Who story. Oh, we know Doctor Who, we know what Doctor Who is. So this whole film yeah. collector's community, the word had not got round that there were any eps missing episodes of Doctor Who. There's also a certain, and this might be the case overseas, it certainly was the case as we discovered when we were make, doing this research, uh, doors tend to slam shut very quickly when you make phone calls and letters to these film collectors mm. because there's an element of paranoia about film prints that they're holding that they know damn well they've got by um, less than entirely illegal means and also too yeah, yeah. Neil's told me this I don't know this firsthand but Neil's told me that in the 1970s there were certainly raids on film collectors collections in terms oh, of really yeah in New Zealand over here that's always the the Bob Monkhouse incident that apparently reverberates through the decades, but you had the same sort of thing. Mm. So yes, yeah, a lot of a lot of paranoia and a lot of unwillingness to talk or tell people what they have. And there was a very we got the vibe that there was a very strong feeling that Bruce should not have come forward, should not have let anyone know he had this film, and mm. that he should not have let it out, should not have gone public with it, should have kept it himself type thing. It was like. This is a closed community. We do not talk. It's a bit like Fight Club, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Was there a degree of ostracization from his? Yeah, I mean, there were club. actual moves by the film collectors club that he was powerful to actually have him struck off because of his action, which seems it, was, wow. it seems ridiculous. And it's only because the I think I believe if I got it right, the president of the film club sided with Bruce and said, "No, look, this guy's." You know, he's, he's done good for us. This is a feel-good story that, because of our efforts, that the BBC's got a film back that they didn't have. We should be celebrating this, not censuring him. So yeah. I think he survived mm. that, that ousting because of the, the president backing him. But it sounds absurd, doesn't yeah. it? So talking about the aftermath then, we've got as far as um, your film print closely followed by the VHS turning up on Steve Roberts's. Yeah, I mean, stuff. then it's down to Steve working his magic, shall we say. You know, the restoration team, as they were at the time, or put it through a wet gate process, I believe, to try and get as many of the scratches out. I mean, you've seen the condition of the mm. thing on on DVD. Mm. You know, it's not the best quality, but they did the best they could. And I would hope now that time's moved on and software's improved, that when it does come out on Blu-ray, that a lot of those scratches may be able to be cleaned out. I'm not sure. I would hope mm. that it'll look, look a lot more spruced up. But obviously they don't have the film print anymore. They've got the digital copy they made at the time because it was returned to Bruce. Indeed. And nowadays, well, not that they've done them on Blu-ray yet, but they, they certainly have a practice of scanning things in HD now, don't they? Because I gather Mr. Crocker has said that even if there's no more resolution in the picture, you get more resolution in the damage, and that makes it easier to get the damage itself out. <laughs> yes, Bruce, when Bruce got the film back from Steve... This is about a month later, I think. I'd thought nothing of it. I kind of like, you know, the film had gone back to the, the BBC, to, to Steve, and Steve had done all his work on it. And I was going, this is all good, this is all good. And then Bruce contacted me a few weeks later and go, what's happened to my film? And so I got in touch with Steve and go, oh, yeah, yeah, we should return that, shouldn't we? So it's kind of like, so Steve FedExes it back to me and I return it to, to Bruce. Then Bruce goes on to do it the, the first and only public screening of the film at a sci-fi convention in Auckland. 
<laughs> it was very elaborately staged. Bruce was like, I want security guards. <laughs> you know, when I walk in, when I, he, wants to be, he wanted to be driven to the convention by security guards and he wanted to be walked in by, flanked by these security guards and he was going to put it on his projector and everything. So the, the convention were like rolling their eyes at this and chaos is just ridiculous. So they, they, what they did was they, they very cannily got a, a, a few of their friends who, you know, the organizers' friends who, who happened to be quite solidly built characters to, to put on dark suits and sunglasses. And, <laughs> <laughs> So uh, Bruce was probably, to be fair, Bruce was probably in on this, but he looked the part. You know what I mean? He wanted the showmanship of it. He he wanted the theatrics of it. And Bruce's motivation behind doing all this was that Bruce wanted to auction off the film. Bruce believed by Mm. this point that he was going to make a hell of a lot of money out of it. He was talking at one point about buying a house out of the proceeds of selling the film. (laughs) Yeah, a million dollars. He sincerely believed this. And nothing I could say to him would would, would do any different. Uh, When it went public, and I I was interviewed by um, one of our newspapers, the very pushy reporter was like, how much is it worth? How much is it worth? And I just plucked a figure out of thin air. I said, oh, it might be a thousand pounds, maybe. I don't know. And so, of course, this went yeah. into print. Doctor Who print worth $1,000, you know. It's kind of like, um, well, I just speculated there. But Bruce is like on to me going, it's worth far more than that. You've, you know, you've really, really undervalued it. It's, it's ridiculous. It's one of a kind. It's, it's going to go for millions of pounds, and I'm, I'm going to make a lot of money out of it. Part of the problem was he was racked up by the lottery show in the UK because they did a special episode, which you might have seen, of mm, they had okay. Fraser Hines on it, and they were talking about good luck stories. And, and I think this is a segment they did every week on their lottery show and they got bruce on the show a segment they filmed in new zealand he didn't travel over to the uk for it but he's on the show talking about his amazing discovery and everything and i think that the lottery show because obviously they're associated with like you know a million pound draws and everything i think they just got cemented in bruce's mind what amazingly <laughs> good fortune he had by this owning this film print so they probably racked him up to a certain extent in terms of making him think that he was sitting on this golden lottery ticket. And so he engaged an auction. He didn't go for eBay or anything. He engaged an auction house here in New Zealand to put it up for international auction at enormous marketing expense. And there were very few bids and it didn't reach reserve and it didn't sell. And then they tried again later, again at more additional marketing expense. And it did sell the second time but unfortunately it didn't even recoup the costs that Bruce had outlaid <laughs> in terms of, you know, the you know, the cut from the the, the auction house including mm, the advertising mm. they'd done into it. Although Bruce was not required to actually pay the difference, he certainly didn't make a cent out of it, which is kind of a bit unfortunate. So yeah. from from thinking yeah, he so. had something that was gonna buy him a house to something that made him absolutely nothing at all is a bit a bit tragic really. <laughs> I did say because, you know, obviously this is as much Neil's story as is mine that Neil really ought to be represented on this this episode. What I asked Neil to do was to, to write me a couple of paragraphs that I could read out for you that th- this is Neil's perspective 21 years later on, on finding the lion. So if I, can, if I can read this for you. Please do, yeah. 21 years later, it still seems quite dreamlike to remember that night. The meal we had beforehand, the thought that it could have been a hoax played on us. The agonizing wait as Bruce and his friend watch Veronica Voss. And then the unbelievable <laughs> image of the opening titles on a big projector screen. Then the TARDIS materializing in the clearing and the look on your face as we shook hands in silence so as not to ruin what could have been the only recording you were making. <laughs> wow. But the best bit for me after all this time is still that letter Alvin Rakoff wrote saying, 
We had given him a little bit of his late wife Jacqueline Hill back for just 20 minutes. I still choke up about oh, what he wow. wrote as it means the most to me. And for me, that's what matters most about finding any missing episode and getting it back. It restores the art, the work of people that tried to create something from virtually nothing, memories for those left behind, and maybe for those of us watching it for the very first time, or the twentieth time, the fact that despite the wobbly sets, the black and white and the low budget effects, it's you and me, and all of us, with the Doctor and the TARDIS having an adventure. And once upon a time, 21 years ago, we saved the Doctor. Brilliant, Neil. Brilliant. Hey, hey. Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> well yeah. done. I hadn't heard about that Alvin Rakoff letter. That's amazing. Yes. That's beautiful. Yeah. Because people often talk about, you know, in, when fantasizing about episodes coming back saying it would be nice for so and so to see it and and so on and so forth but that that's a really tangible piece of years later um fraser hines came to new zealand and it was only about five years ago i guess neil and i met him and we 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 explained who we were and his eyes lit up and go oh, you're the guys behind the lottery show thing i did so yeah for, he, he, he <laughs> it really meant a lot to him and it meant a lot to neil Neil, a huge fan of Patrick Troughton and Fraser Hines. His, that's his era of Doctor Who, is the Troughton era. So for, yeah. to, to actually have Fraser recognise who Neil was really just blew Neil's mind. You know, it's kind of like this is just dream come true. <laughs> but you, you can tell from Neil's words there just how, even all this time later, it means so much to him. You know, it's just, yeah. it's the most important well, thing Neil's probably ever done in his entire life, probably. You know what I mean? It's... It's just so important to him. And I'm sure, I really yeah. do hope you get the chance to talk to him because he's got so many interesting stories to yeah, tell. Yeah, well, hopefully. Neil, if you're listening, you'd be very welcome to come on, perhaps to tell us about the Macro Terror. So going back to the, the proposed Bruce auctioning off the print and um, having aspirations of seven figures but achieving three figures, did he get a warning from the bbc or or something about about his ability you, to sell you're quite right there's a whole issue around this and in retrospect looking back all this time later i think the problem is that we were a test case in the sense that mm. prior to that time you would have seen many articles in in doctor who magazine you'd have seen um doctor who books mm. you'd, you'd have seen even like the the documentary on the weiss warriors vhs all talking about Doctor Who missing episodes and all saying, if you ever find anything, the BBC would love to hear from you. <laughs> that whole sort of ethos. If you f think you've got a missing episode, please get in touch. We'd love to get them back. That was the message that was put out there. And yeah. so that mm. was the general impression in fandom. If we found something, it should be returned to the BBC because they'd love to, to, to have the episodes back and make the series that more complete. That's always been the understanding and that's probably quite sincerely what everyone meant. But I think that prior, if I might get this right, prior to the line, I think that most, if not all, of the film prints that have been discovered came from television companies. Would I be right in thinking that? Certainly the, the find before that was Tomb of the Cybermen, which had come from Hong Kong, from the television station. I think there were a handful mm. that had come via private hands, yeah. But I think mm. they'd always been returned to the BBC via the sort of fans who had BBC contacts sure. who could sure. smooth over that sort of issue. Yeah. So this might have been the first time for at least for quite a yes. while. Certainly maybe... Something in, coming out of the blue. Yeah. 
certainly in the last decade prior to that time maybe that an episode had turned up in private hands and therefore had to be negotiated in terms of getting it back to the BBC and all the ramifications around that. So Bruce being his own publicist, if you like, uh, wanting to create a big <laughs> news story about it, was putting out press releases to all the major news organisations and getting a lot of newspaper coverage and media coverage. And as part of that, Bruce was saying in his press releases and everything that his intention was to auction off the film which raised alarm bells at the BBC press office because, of course, from their point of view, he doesn't own the film. He can't sell off an episode of Doctor Who. He doesn't own it. Yeah. That was the official line. And so Steve was instructed to write to Bruce directly saying, look, you don't own the rights to this film. You can't auction it. You don't, you don't have... I don't remember the exact wording of the letter, but certainly it was a, a warning letter basically saying please cease and desist with these 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 intention to make a lot of money out of this film print and i guess too there's also the thing that if that gets a lot of publicity then any other it sets a precedent that any other film print had come to light mm. there would also be the expectation that this would also be a source of major revenue so it would make the situation so much more difficult for the bbc to ever get anything else back yeah. so i could see kind of see their reasoning but it wasn't particularly and it's not can I just hasten to say, it's no criticism of Steve. He was, as a BBC employee, being told to communicate this information. So it's not Steve's words at all. Days later, the BBC had a change of heart and gone, no, hold on, this is going to backfire on us. We need to let Bruce know that while he doesn't own the copyright in the episode, he does indeed own the physical film print. That's his. Mm. So he can auction that. What about that change of heart? What was it a result of any discussions with any, anybody? It might have been Steve's input. I don't know. I don't know. But there was certainly... Right. Steve very urgently got in contact with me because by this time his letter was in the post to, to Bruce, the first letter, the warning letter. And so he said, look, can you just get in touch with... Let Bruce know that, you know, disregard the first letter. There's a second one coming. <laughs> so Bruce was warned about this. Mm. Bruce knew to expect two letters. One letter saying don't do anything, you're a naughty boy sort of thing. And the second letter saying, you know, you're perfectly fine. Here are, here are the legal things. You can auction your film, but you don't own the copyright. But Bruce obviously saw, smelt a news story here and so went to the papers and when they got the first letter. and the Bruce, you know, I'm being, I'm being sued by the BBC. They're going to take me to court, but I'm going to get lawyers involved and we're going to fight it all the way because totally unjust. Yeah. In the full knowledge, yeah. obviously, that the situation had been resolved. <laughs> But this is Bruce wanting to yeah. draw up publicity for his auctions. So. My wider point is that the BBC were not set up. They were not prepared. They were not geared up. They didn't have a process, a policy, if you like. And we, of course, we're not just talking about Doctor Who here because there are other programs, many other programs that they would like to have returned. And one of the, as an interesting perspective, I got a phone call one day. This is maybe a couple of years after Return of the Lion and all the publicity had died down and everything. I got a phone call from a gentleman who was visiting New Zealand called Charles Garland. Now, this guy um, was a producer. I know the name. Right. Where do you know the name from? Didn't he re-edit um, Dad's Army for afternoon repeats on BBC One? Um, you're quite right. Um, so Charles Garland, um, he was on holiday in New Zealand, and because obviously he knew of my name, he looked me up in the phone book, and having a sufficiently unusual name, he was able to track me down and give me a call. So he was just saying, you know, hello, and congratulating me on my part in returning the episode and everything and it was very nice to hear from him and everything and he was making the point that there were still episodes of Dad's Army that it, that it was still looking for so just like Doctor Who that Dad's Army mm. was incomplete yep. and everything you know we were chatting away and lovely guy and everything had a nice conversation on the phone and 
he said to me something which which sticks in my mind to this day. He said, you are ever so fortunate that you got the episode back to the BBC. And I thought, this is an odd comment to make. So I questioned him. He said, you, you're going to be horrified to hear this, but the BBC receptionists, when they take calls from the public, they have a list of people they can forward them to. And these are all producers and production officers for current programs being made. There is nowhere to forward a call to if someone rings up and says, I think I've got a missing episode. So they basically say, well, they get turned away. They get, you know, told, sorry, we're mm -hmm. not interested. It's not one of our current programs. And yeah. Charles Garland's perspective was someone might have had those missing episodes of Dad's Army that he was so desperately looking for and might have been turned away at the switchboard. And he had anecdotal evidence from people who worked on the switchboard, oh, sorry, on the reception desk, that this was indeed the case for... Not people necessarily about Dad's Army, but people who thought they had missing episodes of any BBC program ringing up. And we do, sorry, we don't have a number to forward you to, so we can't help you. Sorry. Flabbergasted. Yeah. He was so upset about this. And so his point to me was fantastic that you managed to get through the switchboard. And I pointed the point, well, no, we didn't. We went through Steve Roberts. And he was going, yeah. fantastic. Fantastic that you found someone who cared. And I think that's all credit to the, the mm. restoration team and Steve Roberts in particular that we had that opportunity because if Neil and I had gone to the BBC, we might have, you know, generally, if we'd gone rang the main number, we might have had a hard yeah. time finding anyone. And I spoke to, I, I interviewed mm. um, Stephen Cole a, a few years later when he made a visit to New Zealand to, to publicise his, his children's books. And Steve Cole, as you might remember, used to be the brand manager of Doctor Who at the BBC at the time of the Lion's recovery. And Steve was equally horrified, but it backed up Charles Garland's story. He said, yes, that sounds entirely plausible that that was happening at the BBC. So, but he was also very horrified that that had happened. So that's just one example of, well, two examples, because there's the whole legal issue and also the switchboard issue of the BBC just not being set up for this sort of thing. One hopes that it's improved to this day. But, you know, I, I have this terrible feeling that if you did ring the BBC now on the general line, whether anyone would actually know what to do with a call like that, if that's still the case. We heard the story of the Nigerian Television Authority ringing the BBC and wanting to return season one of Doctor Who, and they got told, no, it's OK, they're all on DVD, get rid. Yeah, well, see, that's... And that would have been about 99 And as that's well. presumably through the main switchboard and not through anyone who's actually clued no. up on, on, you know... That was alleged to have happened in about 1999, oddly enough, right, isn't it? Right, sure. And, yeah. um, and it didn't come to light for quite a while because, of course, how could it have done? <laughs> The fact that it was never logged as a, a call at the BBC end or taken sure. seriously is, is part of the problem. Yeah, logged as a call at the Nigeria mm. end. Yeah. Yes, much better record-keeping <laughs> in Nigeria. The, the other issue which you're probably well aware of is that the advantage of sending the film to Steve rather than the, to the BBC mailroom was that it was in safe hands that you know, Steve wasn't going to let it out of its yeah. sight and it stayed with him and no one was going to walk off of it. But the disadvantage of that is that I wasn't sending it back through official BBC channels so there was no paperwork trail to show that I'd made that delivery, right? And so <laughs> right. The, the process of me actually being able to claim back my expenses in terms of FedExing this film from one side of the world to the other was not straightforward. Ah. Steve put me in touch with the accounts department at the BBC for me to submit my oh expense Lord. claim. <laughs> and it just yeah. sat there for months. 
we're talking after the thing's already out on VHS before I got any action. <laughs> so you know the film's already making they're already they're already making money on yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And it literally got to the point where I was sort of going, well, you know, I'm happy the film's back and everything. I'm not I'm not begrudging that, but it's kind of like could you could you at least I should say I didn't get paid a cent for the for the line. You know, I didn't make any money. I never intended to. I just my thing was just get the film back. You know, everyone can enjoy it. Because I was thinking, well, you know, that, that's all that matters to me as a fan. I'm not, I'm not here to make any money. But at the same time, you're not mm. a charity. There's one sure way to find out if if they've improved their systems anyway, Paul, and that's for you to turn up the Knight of Jaffa. <laughs> <laughs> but the way, the way, the way I swung it in the end was to fax them a copy of my visa statement that showed the interest rate on it. <laughs> and to basically put a covering note on it going it's been six months <laughs> what what you've done is you know change the landscape of that that second series in, in a in a percentage minor mm. way but but it's uh it's an experience altering thing that you've done for fans of the show oh, and, and absolutely. i hope absolutely. all these i hope all these 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 negatives don't take away from the, the overwhelming positive no. that is there's a, there's a very fine episode mm. of doctor who that sits in the archive but, thanks to thanks to neil the, and yourself the, the point, yeah and the Bruce. point i really wanted to make there is not so much that i have all these gripes although it does sound a bit like that because i'm not bitter about it at all it's it's simply that the amazement that what should have been a fairly straightforward process and should have been something that in our expectation going into it that the BBC would have been set up to embrace us with open arms and to say hey fantastic and as for your as for your own recognition that I wouldn't be at all surprised if we get season two on um, on blu-ray within the next few years and I'm sure I'm sure your name will be all over it this time I think the right people will be writing the sleeve notes and producing the documentaries. Wouldn't it be lovely if and I got to do the production infor- information titles, wouldn't it? But who knows? <laughs> I get told what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to take. I'm going to take that as a hint, even though. It no, no, good lord! It's certainly not. No, no, I'm not winking or anything. Good lord! I'm not getting trouble. No, I can assure you, Paul is not winking. They are. They are apparently planning to carry on with the Blu-ray sets, and uh, they're also planning to carry on with animations. So, one way, one way or the other. The Crusade will be coming to Blu-ray at some point. Wouldn't it be lovely if they eventually do them all? You know, if there's a point where we can sit down and watch Doctor Who from the beginning and all the episodes that don't exist, we can have as animations. That would be brilliant. I mean, over the years, over the last few years, they've been reticent about discussing. They've just taken it one at a time. And um, But I, I mean, I was at the Gallifrey Convention in February and uh, Russell, and I know Russell's only in charge of the Blu-ray range, not the animations, sure. but... I definitely heard it stated publicly that the aim was to try to do all of them. I'm sure that to try to do all the yeah. all the black and white, all the seasons, missing seasons on Blu-ray, mm. all the stories and animations. We've heard various reasons put forward as to why certain stories might not be suitable. I mean, Charles Norton, who was previously producing animations, said he didn't think the Crusade was going to be possible because it had too many characters; it would be too expensive. But that was just his opinion. Um, with his knowledge and, of the way the productions were being done a couple yeah. of years ago and things move on. Yeah. animation software becomes... I mean, I just look at the fact they're redoing Power of the Daleks now because animation mm. software has moved on means that they can... and they've got more money and more 
more equipment that they can actually do a better job than they could say even a few years ago so what's to say that in a few years time that's the 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 technical problems or stories like the highlanders and the crusade that they've said are too difficult won't become that much easier yeah, specifically the highlanders they said um it, well charles it was charles's opinion personally that the, the tartan was too sure. difficult but they didn't yeah. they think that possibly <laughs> things have moved on yeah. If they animated both Marco Polo and the Crusade, I mean, half the cast carries one to the other, so it's <laughs> two for the price of one. Yeah. That's <laughs> very true. Because it's the economy of, and it's the economy of reusing the, uh, the, the facial features, yeah. isn't it, once they've got the, the, the kit set up for the character. Yeah. 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 Which is why they're doing all the trousers, because they've got, they've got trousers nailed now. They can get you doing those. So I'm thoroughly looking forward to that, because I think, as we've already said, it's, a, it's one of my favourite stories. I think Tim feels the same and yet I think I feel like it's still underrated by a, a large section of fandom and I think if they could follow the story through mm. I think there's so much going on it's such a condensed narrative that it's, it's actually slightly difficult just going from episode one to three and missing part mm. of the middle and, and the conclusion mm. because um, certainly I mean back in the VHS days when you just had Ian Chesterton in his library briefly sketching <laughs> sure. in what we've missed it's, it's a, he does it very well but um but goodness me, all that's all that lovely dialogue you're missing and all those wonderful performances. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, we take it for granted because we've had it for so long. But aren't we so blessed that we've got all these soundtracks for everything? Oh goodness me! Oh yeah. There's a, there's a parallel reality where we're doing the animations, but no soundtracks were kept, so we're having to get a sound like cast into. I don't know, maybe Big Finish <laughs> is doing it or something. You know, where they're they're actually just having sound alikes. So, um, animation aside, there's also you know always the the vague possibility that we may yet recover the other two episodes. As we've said on the, the last two editions, the best hope for this story seems to be Ethiopia. There doesn't seem to be any other glaring opportunities, Tim. No, indeed not. And, um, yeah, Ethiopia again. Yeah, if they've got Marco, they've got Rain and Crusade. If they haven't, <laughs> well, never mind. And we'll never know in either case. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a long time later, though, isn't it? It just decreases the possibility, I would have thought. Yeah, a lot can happen in those... It uh, does. 40, 50, 50, nearly 50 years. I, I th thought it was quite extraordinary when Web Affair and uh, Enemy of the World were returned. Going, they, they sat in that film store untouched for all those years. And going, the chances mm. of anything happening to them in all that time and they, they've, they've managed to survive that long it was so remarkable it, it was so obvious on the enemy of the world special edition where we saw some of the photographs of that storeroom was that it was an absolute time capsule yes. that room looked like it had been barred up for the majority of mm. that time and no one had gone in and yeah. you have to wonder what the chances of yeah, that sure. those circumstances repeating yeah. themselves are but you never know i mean paul you've had a hand in returning a, a film that was one out of 371 that just happened to have been fished yes. out of a, a, a dump and then <laughs> and then rescued as part of a larger collection furthermore and then found its way to a person who who knew the right yeah. person i mean these things and, and just happen, happened out of what was probably a large if there was other doctor episodes in there almost all of the other ones in that batch were probably surviving <laughs> ones yeah <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> there's, there's, there's a there's a there's a, a I, mean, I talk about parallel worlds. There's a version where we found episode two of Dalek of um, Dalek Invasion of Earth. You know, and we're going, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yay, we found a film print. But, oh dear, we. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm sure I can still come on to talk to you about it, but no one will be that interested. Right? <laughs> <laughs>
Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. I, I hope you'll come on and talk about a, a story in a, another capacity later I'd, on, perhaps, I'd love if to. you'd be game. It's been an absolute pleasure talking yeah. to you both. It's not contingent on you actually discovering it. We, we'll have you back <laughs> yeah, just I, for the pleasure I, I, of your I think company. you're waiting for me to find something else so I can come on and talk to you about it, right? <laughs> quite right pull your finger out <laughs> thank you for negotiating this 11 hour time difference I think it's been well it's worth quite it quite alright thank you and that concludes our review of the crusade and please join us next time when we'll be discussing the time meddler with another special guest Leslie I'm on twitter at Doctor Who Podcasters with a DR Paul's at Mr. Paul Morris and we'd be delighted if you get in touch. Goodbye.